0: Uh, good morning. Before, before we get started, I want to recognize some homeschool students from Rocky Mount that are here with us today. Uh, we have Elijah and Shiloh uh, Govdender and their father, Melvin. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, the first case uh, that we're hearing this morning is Wynn versus Frederick et al. Uh, I'll note Justice, Justices Dietz and Allen are recused in this case. We'll hear from the appellant.
1: Good morning. May it please the court? My name is Lindsay Smith. I represent Magistrate Frederick with this appeal, and I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. At the outset, I'd like to acknowledge that the facts of this case are deeply unfortunate. However, this appeal presents a pure question of law for this court whether a private citizen may sue a state judicial officer on his official bond for actions taken in the performance of his duties. Now below, the Court of Appeals decided determined that two bedrock immunities, sovereign immunity and judicial immunity were not available to Magistrate Frederick here. This was error for two reasons that I'm gonna address in my argument today. First, sovereign immunity bars this lawsuit because state judicial officers like magistrates are not within the scope of the waiver of immunity provided by General Statute 58.76.5. And second, the Court of Appeals erred in determining that judicial immunity is not available in official capacity actions. This is a novel conclusion that has not been adopted by our courts previously, or in this type of a context. In fact, the distinction between official and individual capacity actions is really immaterial here. What the Court of Appeals should have decided or should have considered is whether Magistrate Frederick's actions were judicial in nature, and this it did not do. Now, what I'd like to do first, I'm gonna talk about sovereign immunity first, and what I'd like to do is turn to the statute that's really at the heart of this dispute. It can be found at page 15 of the appendix to our brief, its general statute, 58765, and it's entitled "Liability and Right of Action on Official Bonds." Now, what this statute does is it allows private citizen to file suits on the bonds of certain public officials for injuries that are caused by the neglect, misconduct, or the misbehavior of those officials. Now, the statute lists the public officials to which it applies: registers, surveyors, sheriffs, coroners, county treasurers and other officers. Now I want to be clear, this statute doesn't actually impose any substantive bonding requirement on any public official. Those substantive requirements are actually scattered throughout our general statutes. And under those statutes, public official bonds are for the protection and the benefit of the state of North Carolina alone. However, what this statute does is it expands the ability of recovery on certain bonds by allowing private citizens to sue on those bonds for negligence. We don't dispute this. We also don't dispute that this statute provides a limited waiver of immunity with respect to the bonded public officials who are within the scope of the statute. So really, the central dispute here, at least with respect to sovereign immunity, is whether a state official, like a magistrate, is an other officer under this statute. Now the Court of Appeals found that it was, and this was wrong for several reasons. First, the structure of the statute itself reveals that it applies only to county officers and not state officials like magistrates. The applicable principle here is pretty simple where a statute includes a general catch-all phrase at the end of a specific list of enumerated terms, courts have almost, have generally up- uh, interpreted that general catch-all phrase to belong to the same category as the terms that precede it. This court has actually previously employed this principle um, in the context of a county versus state distinction that's similar to the one here. In Turner versus the Gaston City Board of Education, which we cite in our brief, the court construed the language of the Tort Claims Act, which applies to suits against the State Board of Education, the State Highway and Public Works Commission, and all other departments, institutions, and agencies. Now in this case, the plaintiff had brought suit against the Gaston City Board of Education, arguing that it fell within this more general language um, in the statute, other departments, institutions, and agencies. And our court, this court, applied this principle and noted that it was required to interpret these words of general enumeration in the context of the specific classifications that preceded them, the State Board of Education, the State Highway and Public Works Commission. And the court specifically said that the reason for this principle is that if the legislative body had intended the general words to be used in their unrestricted sense, those words would have been omitted. And so the court ultimately concluded that the other departments, institutions, and agencies in the Tort Claims Act referred to state departments, institutions, and agencies, and not to local departments, institutions, and agencies as the plaintiff had argued. So what Turner really illustrates is that the purpose of this principle is to give meaning to all the language in the statute. To accept Mr. Wynne's interpretation that "other office, uh, other official" refers to any state bonded official would essentially render the enumerated list superfluous. In other words, if the General Assembly had meant to have the statute to apply to all bonded officials, it simply would have said that, and it actually did say that um, in another section of the bond statutes. This is actually at page one of our appendix, General Statute 58725 and that particular statute uh, that particular section provides for penalties for bonded officials who embark on the duties of their office without having secured a bond and that statute specifically applies to every person or officer for whom an official bond is required this language is clear it is unambiguous and it is markedly different from the language that the the general assembly used in the statute at issue here now in addition to the structure of, this, of the, the language of the statute, the um, history of this statute and um, uh, really uh, uh, leads to the conclusion that the statute applies only to county officials and not to state officials like magistrates. I think the clearest example of this is where the, the General Assembly removed clerks of superior court from the, that enumerated list. So, Historically, this particular statute, um, as part of those enumerated officials, clerks of superior court were one of those enumerated officials. And this made sense because clerks of superior court were county officials up until the 1960s. Now when the judicial department was reorganized and consolidated by the General Assembly, clerks of superior court became state officials and state employees. And that's codified in uh, chapter 7A of our general statutes. Now, eventually, the General Assembly passed a Technical Corrections Act in which it removed clerks of superior court from that enumerated list. And so this makes sense if this statute applies to county officials and not state officials. It also shows how untenable Mr. Wynn's position is that other officer apply to every bonded official because if the, if the General Assembly removed Clerks of Superior Court from the uh, specific list enumerated list, then it, it doesn't make sense that, that, that Clerks of Superior Court would somehow fall under other officer. I think the more reasonable interpretation is that the General Assembly removed clerks of superior court from the list because it wanted to remove them from the scope of the statute. And as a result of that, Mr. Wynn's interpretation of other officer simply can't apply to every other bonded official. Finally, uh, the, the, the structure of the statute, the historical structure of the statute also leads to this conclusion. And it really illustrates um, how the distinction that we're talking about between county and state officials. We're not drawing this out of thin air. We've um, referenced, uh, or at least we've included, a uh, the, the 1905 version of this statute in the appendix. And essentially what the, this particular, uh, the way that the General Assembly constructed the statute at the time, is it had the uh, liability for right of action bonds provision. And then it had all of the substantive bonding requirements, which now are scattered all over the general statutes. It had them all together. And in one section, it had uh, all the substantive bonding requirements for county officers. And in the second, another section, a separate section, it had all the substantive bonding requirements for state officers. And this is at, um, if you look at page 25 of the appendix, that's where the 1905 statute um, is. And if you look at the at the version of the statute and the enumerated officers that are in that version of the statute, every single one of those enumerated officers is within the falls within those county officers that are listed there. Now, of course, this distinction um, is it isn't present in the current version of the statutes like I said those statutes those requirements have now been kind of scattered all over the um, the General statutes, but I think it does illustrate that this is a distinction that has been present Historically in these statutes and this is what the, the general assembly has historically considered that this particular uh, Right of action should apply only to county officers
2: Can I just ask you um, I've, I've looked for this and I've I'm not sure if it's in the briefs already, but who are the other officers, other than the ones enumerated, that in your view would fall under the category of other officers who are bonded but are county officers?
1: So there are a number of other officers, probably about two dozen officers, other officers that are bonded public officials in the state of North Carolina. Some of them are state officials like the state judicial officers, Others are clearly county officers. Um, there are uh, local tax collectors that are uh, county officers. There are also uh, school finance officers. There are um, local government, fi- government finance officers that are required to have a bond. There are state collectors that are required to have a bond. But those would be state officers. So some of them, some of them, some of the, some there are other state officers. I think these, like for example, the the, the tax collector is clearly a county officer. Um, the school finance officer, I think, is probably is also a county officer um, because it's a it's a it's part of the school the school finance office for the local board of education.
2: And so then I have a question about footnote six in your brief because you say that um, if individuals can't sue on the magistrate's bond, it doesn't mean the bond is. Uh, essentially, a nullity, and 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 I want to understand, um, sort of, what the purpose of a bond is if there's no ability to um, sue when a magistrate engages or, or commits a negligent act that isn't a judicial function.
1: Yeah. So, so bonds, by definition and design, public official bonds they really act as like an insurance policy for the state of North Carolina. If you look at the different public officials who are required to have a bond, these are all officials who are required to handle money. Um, So traditionally, bonds really allow the state of North Carolina to go to the surety and recover money that has been misappropriated or mishandled by those public officers.
2: And surely there could potentially be some dispute over whether the money actually was mishandled. And if it, when that occurs, surely there can be litigation in state court over whether or not it was proper, wh- whether or not the magistrate mishandled the funds, whether the funds are missing, how much funds are missing, who's owed the funds, all of those are f- factual matters that could, in theory, be in dispute, correct?
1: I think that's probably accurate, Your Honor.
2: So a suit can be brought on the bond.
1: I think that the way that the, the 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 bonds are typically structured is they're not contemplated to have lawsuits brought on those bonds. Instead, it's a it's a, a claim on the bond to the insurance company that has provided the surety for the bond.
2: Right, but if the insurance company says no, 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 we don't owe you this money on this bond. This money's not missing. You're wrong about your accounting. Everything's actually there. Some neutral fact finder has to decide what's right.
1: And so I. I I understand what you're getting at, Your Honor. And so, again, I'm, I, I don't have experience litigating those particular types of issues, but my, what I think would, would probably be the case is that that would be an action between the, the surety or the insurance company and the state of North Carolina. Not necessarily an action brought on the bond itself, but but potentially some kind of action on the, on the, uh, on, on the provisions uh, of the bond, but not necessarily to recover for ne- in negligence.
2: Well, I guess what I'm trying to, where I'm going with this is try to understand what the distinguishing principle is. Because if the bond exists to pay some money, if a magistrate somehow uh, negligently, inadvertently, Uh, Loses money (laughs) and there's a dispute about whether or not that happened and how much it would be How is that different? What why would why is that permitted but uh, uh, here uh, an action for negligent where? uh, um, a Magistrate has done something that's negligent that has caused harm. Why is what's the distinguishing principle to say one can be? uh, litigated and the other can't
1: So I think the distinguishing principle is about who has the ability to recover on the bond. And I think in the first instance, Your Honor, the state of North Carolina, um, the bonds are for the benefit of the state of North Carolina. And in some of these substantive bond statutes for some of these uh, public officials, that very language is in the statute. And the difference uh, in the second uh, scenario is whether a private citizen can actually bring suit on the bond. And so what this statute does is it really, it does expand the scope of recovery for certain uh, public official bonds, um, but, but, and what it, but it, it expands that scope of recovery in a limited way um, by expanding that to, to certain bonds uh, of certain public officials. Um, and so, so so, yes, so by default and by design, these bonds are for the state of North Carolina, even if there was not an action for a private citizen to recover on those bonds, um, the state of North Carolina would still have the ability to recover any funds that had been misappropriated under that bond.
2: But for all other county, for all other bonds, and in, in your view, um, Section 5876-5 only applies to local, officials, but for all those officials there is a cause of action for by members of the public.
1: That's correct Your Honor.
2: And what would be the principled reason for allowing some officials to have a cause, you, you can bring a cause of action against some but not others.
1: I, I, I guess I, I can't necessarily uh, go into why the General Assembly decided to have uh, a cause of action against county officials versus state officials. I think one, one Thing that we have pointed to in our briefs is that the bonds really work differently um, between the state officials and the, and the county officials. The county official bonds are procured by, the, by those county officials themselves um, and they are approved by, in some ways by the county commissioners. Um, the state officials, uh, those, the bonds for the magistrates, for clerks of court, these were procured by the Administrative Office of the Courts and for the, for the state of North Carolina. And so there's no indication, at least, that, that those types of officers were ever intended to be within the scope of this, of this statute.
3: I have a, a question about that same footnote and argument, and I want to go to the statutes to highlight where I'm a little bit confused. So the bond for a magistrate shall be conditioned upon faithful performance of the duties of the Office of Magistrate. I understand your argument about the dealing with large sum of money, but then I, I went to and the statute section one fifty nine twenty nine, um, the fidelity bonds for finance officers, mm-hmm. and there the, the, the duty for the officer and the bond the bond being conditioned is being conditioned on both a true accounting and faithful performance, and so it seems to me that. If the, if, if the legislature was just thinking about the fact that these magistrates hold money, that it could have written, this, written the statute similarly to the way it does with the finance officers and suggested this is the reason. And instead, consistent with other officers throughout the statute, it's talking about faithful performance of the duties. And some of the duties of the magistrate are what are at the heart of this case. Do you see what I'm saying like that I'm troubled by that specific language for finance officers mm-hmm. because it seems to undermine this argument about well they're, they're bonded because they handle money not because they're bonded because they can be held to account
1: in yeah. their official duty. I see what your honor is, is getting at, and I think the the, the response I would have there is, is simply that, you know, I think it's important to make a distinction between the 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 language and the purpose of the substantive bonding requirements and the and the the language of the um, the, the right of action here, and and I think the. The, the purpose of the right of action is clearly to provide individuals with a right of action on public official bonds. Um, I, I don't think there's anything in the purpose of the substantive bonding statute, uh, statute, um, and even in the language that you point to, Your Honor, that necessarily indicates that it's in, intended to expand the scope of recovery to private individuals as opposed to the state of North Carolina. I'd like to turn briefly. I, I, I want to make sure that I have an opportunity to discuss the judicial immunity question um, that, that arises in this case, because I think if, if, if this court determines that sovereign immunity doesn't apply, the judicial immunity question becomes even more important. And what really makes judicial immunity uh, unique is that it applies to um, action uh, it applies to the actions of individuals, and it not, not necessarily to um, the individuals themselves. And so. The Court of Appeals, the the reason that um, most courts when they are applying judicial immunity is their analysis, they look at what are the actions of this particular uh, employer, this particular public official, and were they judicial in nature, but the Court of Appeals didn't do this. What the Court of Appeals said is, listen, judicial immunity doesn't apply at all in official capacity actions. I have a couple points that I just wanna make and highlight quickly over why this is incorrect. I mean, I think first, it really undercuts the historical reasons why we have judicial immunity. Um, And those reasons are to protect judicial officers um, and judicial decisions from coercive influence, to protect against collateral attacks on uh, judicial decisions, um, to promote the respect for the rule of law, and to prevent judicial officers from being subjected to burdensome litigation And so this is why courts typically look at the actions of that officer. It really protects the judiciary itself and not a specific individual. I think this is really, I think I would contrast it with public official immunity, which is also often invoked. And it really turns on, okay, is this person a public official? Right, um, is a is a uh, superintendent of uh, school superintendent, a public official, is a county commissioner, a public official. I think that's very different from a judicial immunity, which doesn't look at all as to what type of official we have here. It really looks to the actions itself, and so the historical purposes that really underpin this immunity. They don't change, regardless of whether an action is brought in its uh, against a, a public official in their individual or their official capacity. And so, for that reason, it, it doesn't make sense necessarily to set, simply set it aside in official capacity actions. But I think the main reason why uh, it's so important that judicial immunity is available in these types of actions is that to um, is that to find that it is not. originally I thought that it it would allow plaintiffs essentially to circumvent uh, judicial immunity by pleading their cases uh, in an official capacity. It doesn't really allow them to circumvent the cases. Instead, it really blows a hole in judicial immunity and allows plaintiffs to walk right through. So essentially, a plaintiff could sue a judge for um, their official, for some kind of decision that they make, for some kind of order, Um, and that judge, as long as the the plaintiff... um, Uh, pleads that case in an official capacity against the judge judicial immunity would not be available. Now I recognize that frequently and in many cases sovereign immunity will apply for particularly for cases that are brought in their official capacity in superior courts. However as we talked about previously the Tort Claims Act actually provides a, a, a limited waiver of immunity Four cases brought by plaintiffs in negligence in the Industrial Commission. And so essentially, what the Court of Appeals decision has done is it would allow plaintiffs to bring claims in the Industrial Commission against judges. As long as they plead them in their official capacity, those judges would not have recourse to either sovereign immunity or judicial immunity. And those judicial decisions could be under attack, and, and, and those historical purposes that underpin the judicial immunity would not be present. So I think what it really does is it, it, it does open um, uh, the floodgates um, and there's no really limiting principle here that would um, allow this, this historic immunity to continue to be present and, and would allow um, judicial officers to, to uh, have their decisions protected and as well allow um, for an orderly appeals of those decisions. I think one other reason that I would point to for judicial immunity, Your Honors, um, that is Mr. Wynn's. I think it's a concession, really, that um, constitutional principles uh, bar, Actions against a magistrate for their judicial actions under this particular statute. I don't really, I'm not entirely sure how that's different from judicial immunity, but I think it's a pretty major concession because if constitutional principles say that magistrate Frederick cannot be served, uh, cannot be sued under this statute for his judicial actions, then. I don't know why we would set aside those constitutional principles in an official, immu- official capacity case as opposed to an individual capacity case. Um, and so, again, I, I think the, our, 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 our argument would be, Your Honors, that this court um, reverse and vacate the Court of Appeals decision and find that sovereign immunity applies to bar this case But if not, that this Court find that judicial immunity is available in official capacity actions and then remand this case to the Court of Appeals for a determination of whether Magistrate Frederick's actions were judicial in nature. If the Court has no other questions, uh, I will sit down and reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. We'll hear from the appellee.
4: please the court uh, chief justice justices Uh, I'm Carlos Mahoney I'm a lawyer in Durham I represent Paul Stephen Wynn along with Barry Nickell who's seated to my left Uh, mr. Wynn is a 54 year old man who is present with us today Um, he resides in Mebane on the Orange County side of the line this case does arise from a tragic incident and it does have great significance to mr. Wynn Um, But in a lot of ways, it is a novel case. By my calculation, um, although, um, well, it's been 20 years since this court last heard a bond case, that was in Hill versus Medford in 2003. And this court has never had a bond case involving a magistrate since the legislature passed the statutory bond requirement back in 1965. And although um, the statute's been in effect since the 1700s, the number of cases during the last 100 years has been relatively minimal. A lot of the jurisprudence dates back even further, back to the 1800s. It is one of the earliest statutes in in North Carolina to authorize citizens to bring a cause of action uh, against a public officer who's required to post a bond. This case is also a very unique case in that it has very limited resonance past litigants in this matter Um, as the court may be aware from the state's filing of a memorandum of additional authority the legislature has now gone ahead and repealed the mandatory bond requirements for magistrates as well as for all clerks of superior court um, trial level clerks as well as the clerk of the Court of Appeals and Mr. Buckner himself, the clerk of the Supreme Court. At this time, there is not a single judicial officer in North Carolina um, employed by the state that um, has an official bond. So again, this case is very important to Mr. Wynn and affects the litigants in this matter, but has a limited um, impact globally. The facts of this case um, are tragic and they are they are compelling. Um, Mr. Nguyen uh, was severely injured on December 17th, of 2016. That could have been avoided by the allegations in the complaint had the magistrate faithfully performed the duties, the ministerial duties in his office. Although a custody order for the involuntary commitment of this severely mentally ill man had been issued nearly 21 hours before at the request of his psychiatrist, the magistrate had never actually delivered or transmitted it to the sheriff's office, which was just down the hallway um, over in Orange County government buildings. He also did not rectify the situation when it was brought to his attention um, by the psychiatrist. And so Mr. Nguyen, when stepping into the house of his sister, uh, was, um, had his life altered uh, when this young man who should have been taken into custody 20 hours earlier had not been taken into custody as as should have been done. Magistrate Frederick, like all magistrates at the time, had a fidelity bond. And it is a fidelity bond. It's not a bond limited to um, uh, the handling of funds. It's not a bond limited to the handling of of books and records that you sometimes see in the statutes. It is a bond for the faithful performance in the duties of office. It's it's a classic fidelity bond that the legislature had required magistrates, all magistrates to to, um, post. And in this case, the administrative office of the courts as allowed by the legislature had procured a bond policy, which. On its face, it's noted in, um, in the record at, at page 63, I believe. I apologize, 64, that it covered the failure of any employee to faithfully perform his or her duties as prescribed by law. And it provided $100,000 in coverage. And state magistrates are explicitly defining the policy as an employee. As a result, Mr. Wynn filed an action on the bond against the magistrate in his official capacity and joined the surety, as this court has required, um, to recover damages limited to the bond for neglect in the performance of his ministerial duties in office. Neglect um, is, includes negligence under this court's precedent in Williams v. Adam, Adams from 1975 and Dunn v. Swanson from 1940. The state, in turn, had filed their motion to dismiss under Rule 12 b 6 and at the trial level, there were four different reasons that were asserted. Um, those included sovereign immunity, um, included judicial immunity, included public officer immunity, and included uh, failure to state a claim. And the trial judge denied all those reasons. On appeal, before the Court of Appeals, and now before this court, the state has not pursued a claim based on failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted it's only pursued the sovereign immunity judicial immunity issue so when there is an issue raised by counsel for the state as noted earlier that um, the courts that the court of appeals did not delve into the uh, merits of the facts that were pled in the case it's not because of any failure on behalf of the court of appeals it's because it dealt with the issue that had been presented, judicial immunity. The state had said we're entitled to judicial immunity as an affirmative defense, the court said no. And they're still at liberty, at summary judgment, if the facts do not play out like we believe they are, which will establish that we're talking about a ministerial administrative act. If they don't play out that way, they can raise again that these facts are not actionable on their face. Um, because the law in North Carolina has been the same since the early 1800s, that you can't sue a judicial officer for judicial acts. And that's part of the common law. And if we're going to prove a claim of negligence in establishing neglect, we've got to abide by common law principles. And that's why our complaint was alleged as a complaint based on the violation of ministerial duties, the failure to perform those duties and was explicitly noted to not be a matter concerning judicial acts the court this court should affirm the court of appeals um, both on the judicial immunity analysis because the court has the court of appeals had set forth a bright line there's been a lot of confusion in um, appellate cases over the years between official and individual capacity defenses what defenses can be asserted in what appropriate uh, cases. The court noted that judicial immunity is an individual capacity defense. This is an official capacity action, ergo it does not apply. But the state can still defend on the basis of sovereign immunity, which they're doing, and on the basis of failure to state a claim, which they attempted to do at the trial level, uh, but were unsuccessful in this matter. And it does not open the floodgates to all sorts of cases based against judges based on uh, judicial decision making those are clearly barred and are not actionable under the law of the state the sovereign immunity issue fo- really focuses on the statutory construction um, and the court of appeals correctly held that sovereign immunity does not apply because a magistrate is and or other officer under the statute, under 58-76-5, who's subject to suit on his official bond. The plain language of the statute says other officer and it's intended to encompass all those public officers in the state, uh, local, state, county, who are required to be bonded. And in this case a magistrate is required to be bonded. The statute requiring that bond that the legislature passed in 1965 says shall be bonded and it's not limited to the accounting of money it's not limited for any other reasons it's a broad fidelity bond for the faithful performance of the duties in office
2: so your argument is that that this, this is not ambiguous we don't need to go to any rules of statutory construction by the plain language of the statute other officers applies to other officers who were bonded.
4: Absolutely, Your Honor. And not only is it plain on its face, it's also supported uh, by the statutory framework. It's supported by the legislative history. If you want to look back to what the legislature intended in 1965 when it required um, magistrates to post bonds, one would come to the same exact conclusion. In 1965 when justices of the peace were abolished as an office and replaced by magistrates. And so the bond that existed for justice of the peace became a bond for a magistrate. This statute stayed the same. It continued to read just like it reads today or other officer.
0: Does uh, your success in this case uh, rely on with regard to sovereign immunity rely on this court to interpret the statute uh, 5876-5 the way that you suggested. Put another way, if the court were to determine that uh, 5876-5 only applies to county officials, um, would that undermine your claim?
4: Well, that's an interesting issue, Your Honor. How I look at it is that... um, the bonds on the face of it are not self-executing and so the statutory provision at issue 7a-174 does not provide a cause of action on its terms in contrast there are some bond statutes that do explicitly provide a separate cause of action one being the one that appears in chapter 35a 1238 uh, dealing with clerks um, And so one would need to have a separate statutory mechanism to bring an action on an official bond, which incidentally is what this whole section is labeled and what the statute is labeled, liability and right of action on official bonds, not county official bonds, not local governmental official bonds, but official bonds. In keeping, well, in turn, Your Honor, I filed a memorandum of additional authority yesterday because in reviewing the statute of limitations in this state, I noted that the statute of limitation for this case is 3 years explicitly because 1-52 1A explicitly states that there is a 3 year statute of limitation for actions on a pub- on a public officer's bond. It's not, that's not limited to uh, county officer's bonds either. It's not limited to local officers either. And the legislature, when they want to intend to make such limitations, they explicitly say so. And in fact, within the bond statutes, there is a statute in 58-72-10, which appears on appendix two of the defendant's brief, which specifically says, and every other officer of the several counties. So it's not as if the legislature does not know what it's doing when it wants to limit um, the category of individuals at issue. It also supports our position, uh, the case cited by the defense dealing with Turner versus um, the Gastonia Board of Education. It was notable that the phrase that was omitted um, by counsel from the description of the Tort Claims Act provision at issue left out the last three, le- uh, three words, of the state. Agencies, institutions, and departments of the state. And in Turner, the court said that the, the law is not ambiguous. It plainly does not apply um, to, in that case, the City Board of Education, but even if you look at it, it doesn't make any sense that you would have it apply to the City Board of Education because you have state agencies listed there and it says other um, department, institute, or agency of the state. The, all of the statutes within um, Article seventy, well, many statutes within, within Article 72 through 76 also have this broad rubric. I cited on pages 20 through 21 of our brief um, uh, 58-72-1 and it deals with the regularities not to invalidate um, and that appears in defendant's appendix one. And that statute uses broad language. It talks about instruments being received by any person or persons acting under or in virtue of any public authority. Reporting to be a bond executed to the state very broad not limited to counties or local governments 58-72-5 the penalty for officer acting without bond Every person or officer of whom an official bond is required Is subject to penalty if they've not posted the bond? That's not limited 58-73-1 Clearly within the bond statutes deals with state officers. It's a whole statute um, directed at state officers may be bonded to surety company. 58-73-5 when they talk about when a surety company um, is a sufficient surety, they refer to bonds required or permitted to be given by a public official um, guaranteed to guarantee the fidelity of persons holding places of public trust. It makes no sense within the statutory rubric, the statutory framework for the legislature to pass a statute authorizing a remedy for every person who's injured, but then to exclude um, a state officer who is required to post a bond, who occupies the same position that historically has been required to post a bond by legislative enactment. That's just a a construction that does not um, uh, go with the plain language of the statute. And it leads to an absurd result where we have um, the bond statute as passed by the legislature having no um, impact to benefit the citizens of the state. Some of the arguments that were raised um, on appeal were squarely rejected um, over 100 years ago by this court in kivett versus young Um, in kivett versus young from 1890 at at that time the statute had been expanded and included that phrase or other officer along with a lot of the same enumerated um, officers that you see today in this case kivett the court described how the scope and purpose of the condition of the official bonds and the classes of public officers was enlarged by the legislature during the 1800s. The court explicitly talked about how the purpose of the bond and the bond statute to permit a remedy upon it is for the protection of the North Carolina citizens, the North Carolina, uh, people of North Carolina who have to receive the services of these public officers and who should be protected when they are injured. The court said all persons are bound to accept the official services of such officers as occasion may require, and they should be made secure in their rights and have adequate remedy for wrongs done by them. Besides, such officers, indeed all public officers, should be held to a faithful discharge of their duties as such. So in that case, the court held that, so now, Official bonds and the conditions of them embrace and extend to all acts done by virtue or under color of office of the officer giving the bond. Those pronunciations are broad, they are encompassing um, all public officers who post a bond. It talks about the bond not being for the benefit of the state as contended by the defense, but for the benefit of the people of North Carolina. And as a result of that, this court has construed the bond statute broadly in State versus, uh, I'm sorry, that was um, Williams versus Adams from 1973. The court noted that it's been broadly construed over time to ensure its core purpose, which is to ensure that the people of North Carolina have a remedy for wrongs that are done to them by officers who are bonded. So the only sensible interpretation under the plain language of the statute used by the legislature um, over, uh, at this point, hundreds of years is that it's intended to provide that statutory remedy when the legislature, in its wisdom, has decided to require a public officer to post a bond. Now, of course, if the legislature removes that requirement then the statute does not provide a remedy because the officer no longer has a bond. That would also apply if they, if they remove the bond for any of the enumerated individuals. Now, let me just touch real briefly on the legislative history just to make sure uh, I've gotten my, my point across, which may be ad nauseum, but um, the 1793 bond statute was limited to a small handful of officers who at that time required to post a bond. As the legislature added more and more public officers during the 1800s, the statute was expanded as noted in Kivitt to encompass or other officer. In the early 1900s, as noted by defense counsel, you actually had at that point within that bond statute um, a specific article on state officers and an article on county officers. But the same thing is that the statute that you could sue under was the exact same as the one today. It had the same language, or other officer, or I should say materially the same. They've removed a couple of officers, but materially the same. When um, they removed state and county officers as a little subsection within the bond statute, the legislature didn't touch the bond statute. It still said, or other officers. And then the bond requirements were eventually scattered all around the statutes. That same phrase has stayed the same um, in our statutory books for over a hundred years at this point. That legislative history supports the determination that when the legislature in 1965 required the bond, they did so with the intent that this statute serve as the mechanism to permit a, re- a citizen to bring an action upon it, which is why they kept the or other officer.
0: So, so, what what is your interpretation of the fact that the 1905 revision uh, set out county officers, and all of the officers listed in that are specifically listed in 58765 are county officers, as indicated in that statute?
4: And at that time, it had state officers too, who were not explicitly listed there. When they got rid of those um, two separate Sections, they still kept or other officer. And they've kept that the same, Your Honor. They, they've essentially not materially tinkered with that list over the last hundred years. In recent times, you had a constable deleted um, because the constable position no longer exists. And you had a technical correction. The ac- actual act says a technical correction suggested by the General Assembly um, Services Office. Um, which led to clerk of superior court being deleted um, about 10 years ago. That actually makes sense why it would be a technical correction because clerks of superior court aren't the only clerk at that time who was required to be bonded. They also encompassed the supreme court and the court of appeals, and so that the clerks were essentially shuffled over to be included with a, or other officer, which still permitted a remedy against them. And we do look to the title of the act, Your Honor, as you may recall, from Ray versus NCDOT. Let, let,
0: let me go back Vincent and be that. sure I understood what you said there. Yes, sir. So even though <clears throat> the requirement of the clerk uh, being bonded was removed, um, or it was removed specifically from the statute, it's your position that that would still uh, uh the clerk could still be liable under the uh, other officer provision Uh,
4: until the clerk bond was officially repealed and that's because the nature of the change was a technical correction Uh, in ray versus ncdot the court noted that you can look to the titles of legislative acts to discern intent Um, in this case uh, the change requested not by a substantive um, agency but but by the essentially the um, record keeping agency at the General Assembly noted it to be a technical correction. But clerks of superior court continue to be bonded, clerks of the North Carolina Court of Appeals continue to be bonded, clerks of the North Carolina Supreme Court continue to be bonded. These are statutes that work in para materia with one another, Your Honor. Um, you have a bond, if it's not self-executing, um, then If you're not listed specifically, you then fall in as an other public officer who's required to post a bond. Of course, that's all moot now with the recent repeal that took place. If I could turn briefly, Your Honor, to the judicial immunity issue, Um, I do want to make sure. It's clear that we read the Court of Appeals argument as being directed at the nature of the defense that was asserted, which was judicial immunity. That is an individual capacity defense. Um, That's not, it's not been recognized as such by this court, but should be construed in that fashion in this case. Uh, The purpose of judicial immunity is to protect a, a judicial officer and his decision making from the personal consequences of what happens. That same um, public policy consideration does not exist in the same manner in official capacity suit um, because the officer is not the one who's required or subject to liability or unlimited liability. Um, like in this case, an insurance company has the bond. The state procured the insurance company and deals with any uh, at impacts uh, from any increases in premiums. Um, the officer. Uh, The judicial officer um, has no say in the scope of the waiver of immunity which is solely within the state's um, realm. The state can pick and choose how it wants to waive immunity and either waives it or preserves in some way various carve outs. And so those same considerations are not um, as prevalent um, in an official capacity claim to warrant the allowance of an individual capacity defense. And it's probably good as well for the courts to provide some bright line guidance to the trial courts as to which immunities can and should be asserted in various matters. And a bright line that creates um, personal immunity such as public officer immunity, judicial immunity, prosecutorial immunity as being the province of the individual should be separated out from those official capacity immunities, such as sovereign immunity, which is the principal one. And that's a principle that's been noted by the US Supreme Court since 1985 in Kentucky versus Graham. And this court has um, cited favorably Kentucky on several occasions since then, um, dealing with other issues concerning the individual official capacity divide. Um, Kentucky versus Graham was reaffirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court in Hafer versus Mello in 1991. And then the same exact principles were reiterated in unanimous opinion in 2017 by Lewis versus Clark. Um, and there's been no avalanche of lawsuits at the federal level, no um, significant um, consternation that's led to problems within the federal system over having that divide. Ultimately, though, How could one sue a judge or a magistrate for that matter for a judicial decision? I mean, what what within the common law would permit such an action? Um, We go back to 1839 um, with the Cunningham versus Dillard decision. No action can be supported against a judge or justice of the peace acting judicially and within the severe of his jurisdiction. 1860, Fur versus Moss, Um, no action where a magistrate slash justice of peace is acting in a judicial capacity. 1953, Fuquay Springs versus Rowland. And the Fuquay court even noted that the legislature did not have the authority to establish under the Declaratory Judgments Act a right of action against a judge in his his, uh, acting in his judicial capacity. So the parade of horribles just is not a reality, especially now in light of the fact that you can't even sue a magistrate going forward because there is no bond that exists. Your Honors, I got a minute left. I'd like to answer any questions that you may have. Um, I think our, our briefs were, were exhaustive and and we've tried to go back, at least on the bond and, and research the history of it to um, you know, provide the court with guidance as to how these this archaic statute has come to the present Um, but unless judges don't have any questions i will um, just ask you to please affirm the court of appeals decision and allow this case to be remanded back to the trial court so we can proceed with discovery thank you
0: thank you counsel
1: Honours, I have a few points that I'd like to make, and I'll try and be as brief as I can. I'd like to start with judicial immunity. Uh, My my opposing counsel, uh, I think, began his argument by saying that this case is of limited relevance because it really is only going to apply to Mr. Wynne. While that may be true um, in some respects with respect to the the bonds for uh, state judicial officials, that is not true with respect to the decision concerning judicial immunity. Um, This decision by the Court of Appeals, I think, does have uh, wide-reaching and sweeping ramifications. Um, There is no case that has held that judicial immunity is unavailable in an official capacity suit. Um, no case in, in in the state of North Carolina and in none of the cases that um, Mr. Wynn cites uh, from the Supreme Court uh, considered judicial immunity. These are cases that were considering individual versus official capacity actions in the context of Section 1983 cases. Um, uh, and then in, a, in another case, whether um, sovereign immunity could be asserted as a, as a defense um, when uh, uh, an official was sued in his individual capacity, but none of these cases held that judicial immunity was unavailable in an official capacity case. And judicial immunity is unique because it protects the judiciary. It is unique from these individual defenses. Um, it's, It's not the same as a public official immunity defense. And so the purpose of judicial immunity is really going to be undercut by the Court of Appeals decision. I know that that, um, my my opposing counsel uh, makes the point, well, how would you sue a judge? Um, Well, you could, bring a suit um, on a judge's decision um, in negligence uh, in the Industrial Commission, and there would be no availability um, of this defense to protect the uh, the, uh, the judicial decision-making process. And it's not limited to this particular case. It's not limited to magistrates alone. And I think the final point I'd make on judicial immunity is I, I think Mr. Nguyen really has conceded that <laughs> immunity um, would uh, some form of immunity would apply um, because of the common law cases that, that he references. Now, he distinguishes those from judicial immunity. I, I'm not entirely sure how. I mean, it seems to me that we're both talking about a form of immunity, a form of protection for judicial decision-making, and I think, well, that- I, think
0: I think the distinction seems to be administrative task versus judicial tasks. Um, let's say that um, uh, a bond was revoked And during the the time it took for that revocation to actually be served on the individual, they committed a crime. And and should this court get into the position of, well, is this uh, a, a, a judicial act? Is this an administrative act? And if so, is that a legal decision that we need to make versus some factual determination?
1: Your Honour, I don't think this court should get into that that decision right now, and and the reason for that is actually pretty simple. Is because that issue is not before the court. It's not an issue which this court has granted review on, and it's not one in which we've we've briefed the court um, on this. And so the the most prudent decision would be to send this back to the court of appeals. Now the court of appeals could make that determination, and this court could make that determination if it felt the need to do so. I mean, it is a um, we would we would we would hold that it is a legal legal decision to be made, um, whether um, a judge's or an official's actions were judicial or ministerial. But the most prudent uh, course of action would be to send this back to the Court of Appeals. Now, uh, I have about a minute left, and on that, I just wanna touch on a couple of uh, of points on sovereign immunity. I think the first is that my my opposing counsel referred to the bond that the magistrate has as a classic fidelity bond. And a classic fidelity bond is for the benefit of the state. And under that, you don't need a separate statute authorizing uh, rights of action for the state to go to the surety and make a claim on that bond. You simply do not need that. Um, I wanna distinguish again between the bond statutes that are uh, requiring a bond, and the statute that allows for a right of action on that bond, and particularly to the to the case that um, uh, that that my opposing counsel cited, Kivett versus Young, that that's that case involved a sheriff who was who was one of the enumerated officials under this bond statute. And so when it talks about individuals having a remedy, it's talking about the remedy that's provided in this right of action statute. It is not talking about the remedy that is um, inherent to public official bonds. And I think that's a a, a pretty um, important distinction to make. Um, And I think that the last point that I would make is that um, my, my opposing counsel said that other officers plainly means other officers who have a bond. And this just is not tenable. It doesn't square with what the, the General Assembly did when it um, removed clerks of Superior Court from, uh, from the scope of the statute. Uh, so for these reasons, Your Honor, we would ask that this, course, uh, this court reverse the Court of Appeals decision. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel. Thank you both,
4: counsel.